Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello. And welcome to Whispers from the Heart, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen the lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm sharing a house with them. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. So, this mini-series has taken us kind of all over the world so far. We've been to Kilkenny with Cartoon Saloon. We've been to LA with Domishi and Pixar. Returning to to Japan and Ghibli for this episode. Michael, who are we talking to? So today, yeah, this is going back to basics. This is one for the hardcore Ghibli nerds. This is Steve Alpert. Um, We've mentioned Steve on the podcast a couple of times. He wrote a book uh, which has now been released in English called Sharing a House with the Never-Ending Man. He was very important in the history of Studio Ghibli. He was their first head of international, hired in the mid-late 90s as Ghibli started to uh, expand into international markets. So he was involved in the way that Princess Mononoke was uh, localised for the States. He was there and uh, very much involved in that process. He was, of course, there as well when Spirited Away took off um, for its Oscar run, its festival runs, absolutely everything. So, And the book is really fascinating, I will say. Um, strongly recommend it if you want some good insider chat about Ghibli. And if you've listened this far into the podcast, I think you're interested in the insider chat. Um, Steve um, really gives us a lot of insight into the characters behind Ghibli as well as the process Uh, fantastic like pen portraits of uh, Miyazaki a little bit a tiny bit of Takahata but if you are a Toshio Suzuki stan as uh, I know that we are um, there's a lot in here about him but also a person that we've not really spoken much about uh, which is the big dog himself Yasuyoshi Tokuma who is head of Tokuma Shoten Ghibli's parent company um, and a, a person we've maybe mentioned once or twice in the history but Steve worked directly with him and he seems like well, he seemed like an incredible character and if you have any interest in the differences between Western and Japanese business practices, there's a lot of that in here too. So that's sharing a house with never ending man. It's got a great cover actually, because one of the trivia point about Steve is that he came back after he'd retired from Ghibli 
um, in the 2010s to voice Castorp, the mysterious German guy in The Wind Rises, <laughs> who was then dubbed into English by Werner Herzog when it finally did the English version. So the cover is the character of Castorp looking very um, mysterious with a cigarette. But yeah, it was, it was so good to talk with Steve um, about all sorts. This is the second time we've spoken to somebody who has first-hand experience of working with Ghibli. So, of course, we want to speak at great length to get as much out of them as we can. And we're so grateful to Steve for spending time with us. And in very typical Ghibli fashion, we've got nature involving itself in our very conversation, uh, as Steve did record this conversation outside. So here is Steve Alpert talking about Ghibli. Steve, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. It's absolutely an honour always to talk with anybody related related to Studio Ghibli and its history, but also you played such an important role during a really important phase in that history of the studio. Um, Could you remind me of exactly what your job title was? (laughs) You know, Studio Ghibli wasn't really big on job titles. (laughs) It's a funny question to begin with. (laughs) <laughs> but I was in I was in charge of no really I mean, you know Miyazaki San was called the the shocho, so that's a made up term in Japanese which means the head of the place. Uh, do you speak Japanese? I don't. I didn't ask, but uh, not very well. No. So president is shocho, which is a real term that was Suzuki San. Miyazaki San was shocho. So people in the studio had kind of unusual titles, but my mm. business card would have said senior vice president in charge of um, international distribution, I guess. And right. they made yes. they made me a senior vice president because I was basically, aside from um, Miyazaki-san and Suzuki-san, I was by far the oldest person in the studio. So they thought senior would be good for, for that. The dictionary definition of the term senior. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> Never more out. But, right. But my job was to get distribution for Ghibli's films outside of Japan. Uh, Mm -hmm. And at that time, most, you know, virtually all the films hadn't been distributed yet. Uh, And also I got to uh, handle the translation of all the films into various foreign languages, mainly English, of course, and um, but also French, Spanish, and German mainly oh and chinese (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's all there in the book the so so, so many amazing anecdotes about not only brokering this relationship with disney around both princess mononoke and spirited away but also uh tackling the the chinese market as well these big anecdotes but i wonder what was a day a normal day on the job for you or were there well there was no no there were no normal days you know a lot of traveling because uh, I adhere to the uh, traditional Japanese way of doing business, which is face-to-face. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the things we were doing, I think uh, it's always better to do it in person than any other way. Um, you know, and a, lot of, a lot of the film distributors we were talking to had not really heard of Ghibli films, and they had a low opinion of... Uh, Japanese animation in general to begin with, you know, 
and uh, so it was kind of an uphill battle. Uh, and in those days, when I first started, uh, you know, um, say Japanese uh, TV animation was selling abroad for fifty dollars an episode. You know, so wow. when you're talking to, to distributors, uh, you're talking to people who expect, you know, to pay very little for the rights and uh, expect to have very few restrictions on what they do with the rights. So mm -hmm. in that sense, it was kind of difficult. But, and the other part of it was, you know, finding the right distributors, um, which involved, you know, going to the places and talking to people. Uh, I think we were especially lucky in the UK. Uh, we found a really good distributor right off the bat, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Optimum Releasing, and uh, they. <laughs> I'm trying to remember where it was, but they were. It, when I first went, they were in a really tiny office on the second floor above a used bookstore. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, now they're a huge distribution company, but they were just starting out. And they, they knew of Studio Ghibli's films, and uh, they were very interested in you know seeing if they could do distribution. Um, I think the the best example is Spirited Away. Mm -hmm. Even though it was hugely famous everywhere in the world, uh, and uh, had won, well, hadn't really started to win awards yet, but it was you know it was incredibly had a great reputation, but it was really hard to find distribution. Mm. And uh, then we had the problem with Disney, of course. But uh... and well, that's what's amazing. All of that is detailed so well in the book, and I, I mean, I'm, I've been recommending it to everybody. Oh, not only because it's one of the few books in English that go into detail about how these films were made and how they were released around the world, which has become such a, an area of interest uh, for me and passion, oh, great. as well as for this podcast. You know, really wanting to talk about how these films are. Uh -huh. Sort of re, you know, repackaged if you know, or, or not, or uh, you know, when they're re released around territories. So that's why it's really fascinating that you've already brought up UK distribution because that's something that you don't necessarily cover in detail in the book. But for a how old would I have been 15 year old kid in Manchester in 2001, 2002, the fact that Optimum Releasing released Spirited Away got proper posters with pull quotes from the likes of Jonathan Ross, the the BBC's film critic. Yeah. It was shown at the Corner House, the local cinema, art house cinema that I could go to. It was well, a huge deal. Right. I mean, you see, well, that's that's good because that's what I mean. I mean, you don't find that out unless you go. You talk to these people, and yeah, they're in this little tiny office, you know, that looks like they're going to be out of business the next week or something, you know, and there's people just crammed in. But when you hear how they talk about how they're going to distribute it and what they think of the film and you know, things like that, you realize you're talking to the right people. It may not mm -hmm. look like it from the outside, but you realize, yeah, these are the people you want to be distributing this film. You know, we mm -hmm. could have had somebody bigger and more main, uh, mainstream, I guess you would say. But, you know, we just felt these are the right guys. And that is also part of the book. The book could also just be read from the point of view of the differences between Western and Japanese business practice and how meetings <laughs> are conducted and how offices are run. And that's really fascinating. I almost wonder how that face-to-face, trust-based system is working in the time of the pandemic, of the time of Zoom meetings rather than actual meetings in the physical space. Well, that's a good question. Uh, 
you know, it seems to me, although I don't know from actual experience, that it really hasn't changed that much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for one thing, from what I hear, Japanese business practice is still continuing. I mean, the way mm-hmm. people are behaving in Japan. They haven't changed much. Uh, they haven't made that many concessions to the coronavirus, you know. Right. And even when I lived in Japan, it wasn't unusual to see a lot of people in public wearing masks. So they, that's a thing that right. they're used to. They have, uh, my wife was pointing out, you know, in the pollen season, you know, people are worried about allergies. Just about everybody's wearing masks. Hmm. So it's not a, you know, it's not a leap for them uh, to do that. But on the other hand, they didn't close bars or small restaurants. And uh, I understood a lot of uh, studios were, including Ghibli, a lot of businesses mm. were still operating pretty much pretty much as normal. But they did uh, wherever possible. They went to video conferencing and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So uh, I was talking in the book about Mr. Tokuma, who uh, mm-hmm. you know was the president of the company that previously owned Studio Ghibli. And he used to invite me upstairs to eat ice cream with him, you know, and I I never got that. I, you know, it's just a strange thing, I thought, at the time. But as I was telling Michael, you know, and somebody asked me about it in an interview, and it just suddenly clicked. He just wanted to look me in the eye and see if I could sit there and eat ice cream with him, you know, without getting nervous, because that's how he could tell whether I, I was up to anything that, you know, he wouldn't approve of. So, you know, I, <laughs> he was old. He's a, he was an old school Japanese businessman, and and that's how mm-hmm. they, you know, they paid attention to that kind of thing. And it, yeah. yeah, and you're right. You don't get that so much, I guess, when you're doing Zoom conferences or just uh, phone or email, whatever. It's important. It's very hard to have ice but, cream breaks. Yeah, but to get back to what I was originally saying, uh, it was really important in the beginning. Um, you know, to make sure people understood how important Studio Ghibli was, you know, what kind of a studio it was, and that, you know, without disrespect to other studios, it it wasn't just, you know, typical anime. This was really serious mm-hmm. filmmaking, and, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I guess, we, you know, we're, the biggest breakthrough, it became a lot easier once... Uh, Spirited Away won the Golden Bear at the Berlin Film Festival because it was the first animated film to ever win a major award at a a major film festival, you know, and that kind of put a stamp of legitimacy, you know, as -hmm. as a film. I mean, you know, that's something that Miyazaki himself always felt that, you know, we're filmmakers. We're not just making animation. This isn't cartoons. This isn't anime. And again... When a Japanese person uses the word anime, it's a different word than, you know, than uh, we use it in English. Let's say, you mm. know what I mean. So, yeah. when when Miyazaki-san says anime, he means he just means animated filmmaking in general. You know, he's not referring to a specific style of filmmaking, say. Which is where in the West in the States and in the UK, animes become this sort of subgenre where it's almost serving a specific demographic with certain right. sorts of expectations and presumptions. Right. And I, I wonder, in when doing this job, going and 
see you know speaking face to face with all these distributors from various territories yeah what were the common misconceptions and presumptions you were facing and trying to overturn well let's start with the united states in mm. in america uh they believed that animation was only for children you mm. know not not it's not something adults or young adults should be watching just for kids cartoons uh and um to begin with. Uh, then there was the question of the length of a film. Since it's for kids, you can't, it can't be any more than 90 minutes. If a film is longer than 90 minutes, forget it. No one will ever come to see it. There was that. Uh, and then, you know, I guess into the, uh, the parts that they talked less about is that it's Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Americans you know, Americans don't like foreign films. And America, I guess, I would say America's probably the only place that I'm familiar with where they don't ever dub anything. You know, it's nothing is dubbed. Whereas, gosh, in Japan, they dub everything and it's done so well. I'm not really familiar with the UK, but I know in France, they do an incredible job, you know. A lot of things you watch you wouldn't know that it was ever originally in another language. Mm -hmm. But uh, in America, they don't do it. So because they don't do it, there's nobody that does it well. So when they do do it, they actually don't do it very well because they, they don't have mm -hmm. the experience. And it costs a lot of money to do it. <laughs> so Right, yes. So, But that's a <laughs> handicap. So it, when, you know, when the first film we did was uh, in the U.S. was... Um, Mononoke Hime and uh, Miramax at that time they you know they were starting to do really well with foreign films they were getting into the mainstream I think they'd just done The English Patient you know and they were mm -hmm. they were starting to think well yeah you know these foreign films they, they don't have to be limited they can go mainstream and people will watch them if we can dub them so mm -hmm. they first dubbed Il Postino do you know that film? yes yeah so I've never seen the dub, but I from uh -huh. from people who have seen it, I heard it was just hilarious. Uh, the only react, according to the people that I talked to, the only possible reaction was laughter, mm -hmm. which is not the way they intended it. And I think they thought, okay, so that wasn't so good. Let's try an animated film. You know, that's why they were really anxious to try and uh, do a really good job dubbing uh, Mononoke Hime. Right, yeah. They hired, so they hired have... Neil Gaiman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and that's told so well in, in the book. You, you said that you focused on the US there in terms of the yeah. the um, the presumptions you had to face. Right, Were... so it was the US. So the, the um, I, I guess in Europe, we, we heard a little bit less of that, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um but I think that was because we were talking to people who were more in line with what we were we wanted to do. Uh, the UK, the, I think the dubbing was pretty good in the UK when we did separate dubs. Uh, but uh, that was the UK and Australia preferred to have their own dubs, and I think we didn't want right. to spend the money, to, to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. uh, Apologies for that. <laughs> um, but France, man, France, 
France and Japan, in a lot of ways, are, are just like they're right on the same wavelength in a lot of things. And uh, mm -hmm. France was the one market where we never had any problem. And, I mean, to the extent that our best distributor in France was Disney, because the Disney people right. in France are just so different than, you know, the people there, the Disney people are mm -hmm. in other countries. <laughs> no, but it, it is crazy, isn't it? And anecdotally, you know, people I know who grew up in France or Italy or Spain just seem to have a more broader international appreciation of animation. They were seeing yeah. maybe some of even the pre-Ghibli series that Miyazaki or Takahata would be working on that has have never been shown in the UK at all yeah. and are pretty hard to track down in English. Yeah. So just dif different culture and different appreciation of the filmmaking. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, it brings up another interesting point. I mean, a lot of the stuff... If they had been, it would be pirated stuff. Uh, mm. It wouldn't be legitimate. And um, because of that, it's hard to get that stuff. And also from the point of view of budget, it's hard to get that stuff dubbed and dubbed properly. Uh, mm. But, I mean, there are other technical problems with the um, earlier films. Um, I mean, kind of boring rights issues that prevent them some, oh, right. sometimes from being legitimately licensed by, by um, companies that would do a good job. But, um, you know, for example, in Italy, we had a lot of trouble. Uh, you know, we thanks to the Internet, uh, we would find out after a film was released, you know, we'd get all these complaints. Uh, this is wrong. This is wrong. We'd look into it. In Italy, for example, the first films that, they, that Disney released were so badly mistranslated, we couldn't believe it. You know, they even got Hayao Miyazaki's name wrong and wow. all kinds of terrible... I just, I can't remember anymore. It was just terrible. So we looked into it and we found out, you know, the, they hired a translator whose, whose entire experience was translating a couple of comic books and had two years of uh, Japanese language in college. That was it. Mm -hmm. So it's... It, it's easy enough around the world, it's easy enough to have something translated from English to whatever language. But from Japanese to that language, France is pretty much the only place where you can do it. So mm. what we had to do is we had to make a, a liter, what we call a literal English translation that's not beautiful and wouldn't fit the uh, the screen, you know, to be used. But you could use it as a base to do uh, a translation into another language. You know what I mean? So in other words, mm -hmm. this is they exist. These these scripts exist somewhere. They there's a, a perfectly translated script in English that they would use as the basis to translate into other languages, and and that's important, you know, because the fact that it's in Japanese made it a problem to distribute. And then the fact mm -hmm. that it was badly translated into Japanese kind of wrecked the movie in a lot of ways. Right, yeah. So, we recently interviewed a voice artist who um, uh, contributed a voice to uh, the film Tokyo Godfathers that was recently re-released in the States. Right. And uh, she was telling us how in the booth they were given almost a grid of the literal Japanese translation, a sort of intermediate and then a creative, and then a space for them to almost work within a space, which sounds awful, like a crazy job to have. Yeah. See, I think you know, I, I've I've actually done it. 
just to see what it was like. But uh, I can't imagine anything more difficult because you're giving, you're trying to give a, you know, a professional performance. You know, these guys are really great voice actors and voice actors, but you've got to match what you're saying to the lip movements on the screen, and they only do the lines a bit at a time usually. So you do it, you know, do like seven, ten, twenty times, mm. and then you've got to go back. You, they they listen to it, they pick one, and then they say, okay, now do the rest of the line. You've got to pick up the same intensity, you know, the same whatever it was and that and the first people to the when the first people you know each person that dubs listens to the lines before them so the very first people are listening to in japanese their lines are in japanese they don't really know exactly what's being said sometimes mm. that makes it it's really hard to do and uh you know in my experience the people who are really the best at it are british as it turns out Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Our British Patrick Stewart was amazing. Uh, Mini Driver, Jean Simmons, she was absolutely great too. She was really wonderful. Yeah. yeah. But then, after all that work and sweat to go into the dub, this is a question that is the fanboy at heart. It's, it's always been a question for me whenever I ask somebody who works in the industry, should we watch the dub or the sub? Yeah. Version of a film. And which do you think? And the bad news is there's no real answer to that. I've heard a lot of different opinions, and I, you know, I obviously can't have an opinion because I hear it. I hear it in the original language, and I, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think I would say people have said to me, what they do is they first they watch it in subtitled, and then they get it, and then they watch it again in the original language. So I guess that's it. But I think, you know, my own personal conclusion is if you can't, if you don't understand Japanese and you don't hear the original Japanese, you're going to lose something because uh, especially both Miyazaki and Takahata, but especially Miyazaki, the language is so beautiful and so perfect um, that it just, you know, it's a, it's a layer of the, of the film that, you know, you. So what we try to do is give you as much as we possibly can, given the limitations uh, when we dub it. Um, even if you, you know, the subtitled version. I mean, the thing about subtitling is, if you're reading the subtitles, you're missing what's on the screen. And mm-hmm. Hayao Miyazaki is incredibly visually oriented. So, you know, I don't know if I told this story in the book, but. One of the things I used to do was uh, approve the color timing of the films released abroad. Mm-hmm. So for the U.S. releases, I would fly to Los Angeles and go to Technicolor, and we'd sit in this, you know, this um, oh, what do you, a sound room, I guess, not a sound room, a screening room, mm-hmm. a small screening room with a couple of guys, and we watched the entire film, brand new, perfect print. I mean, this is another thing I learned, too. In the days of film, a print, uh, you know, degenerates every time it's mm-hmm. it's run through the projector. So, if you've never seen one of these films in uh, in its pristine, perfect version, wow, you're really missing something. I mean, it's amazing. So, 
we'd watch, we, you know, I'd fly in, I'd be jet lagged, I'd sit in the room with these guys, we're watching the film, uh, it's double screen, one screen is the original, one screen is the new version, they're playing together, you know, and I'm, no sound, so you can talk, and, uh, you know, I'm watching these films, and these guys are going, so look what's happening in that corner, you know, did you notice that, this, and I'm, I'm watching this stuff, and I realize, oh my, it's like watching fireworks, you know, and these guys are saying, I can't believe they did that. Nobody would do that. You know, this, there's so much going on here. Look at the detail, you know, and you're watching this movie and it's just incredible. You know, it was just an incredible experience. And the one I think about the most is um, Porco Rosso, which, you know, I, I'd only seen that on video and I never really appreciated it until I saw it on the, you know, on the big screen and the pristine print. That is an amazing film, and I don't think you ever really get it unless you've seen it in a movie. Well, maybe home theaters these days, but if you've seen that yeah, in a movie you, theater, wow. Well, we're experiencing that a little bit with even the within my lifetime or my lifetime as a fan of these films, going from the DVD release to the Blu-ray release. Right. That gives the film a whole new life. Very recently, I'd, I'd been carting around quite an old DVD of... Princess Mononoke for the last three or four house moves I've had and then very recently right. upgraded to Blu-ray and it was like watching a whole new film. Right. Um, so I guess, I, I know what you mean, your intention is split reading the subtitles, watching the film, and but really if it just gives you more excuses to watch the film over and over again, then we're all happy, surely. <laughs> well, that's the other thing, you know, Miyazaki always said he didn't want people to watch his films more than once. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, you never, Why did you say you, that? You know, you'd have to ask him. <laughs> he said it a lot. <laughs> said, okay. oh, people shouldn't watch it over and over. Well, he was opposed to video, uh, uh -huh. but he was convinced of why he had to release it on video. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, so as an artist, you know, this is how he sees the film on the big screen. In other words, he draws, he creates it, for the big screen. That's how it's meant to be seen, if you know what I mean. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, I don't know if there's an example, but that's his vision of the film. So he doesn't like the idea of people looking at it on a smaller screen or pausing mm -hmm. it or whatever. Do you know? Yeah. No, I, I understand that. Well, plus it's a, it's a theatrical experience. So, you know, you're in a dark and big dark theater and there's a wonderful sound system. And there's other people in the room. You know, that's the experience he's creating the film for. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's not to say that the film is actually diminished by viewing it any other way, but that was his, you know, that's how he looks at it as the... Exactly, and if if you're a fan of these th these films as, as as I am, seeing it in the cinema in the theatre is is a whole other experience. The fact that you can drink it all in and be completely surrounded by it. I know you say that home yeah. home cinemas are are getting better, but you haven't. No, I I don't even have separate speakers for my TV. Right. So uh, no, it, yeah. it's not competing with a with a cinema just yet. No. But I like how how what what is so invaluable about your book is that in the, for the english language reader it's giving us this insight into these these the dramatist personae behind these films okay um miyazaki well also primarily the secret 
hero of our podcast all the way through is Toshio Suzuki. Oh, right, yeah. Every time when we're setting the context for a film, he's the guy that is putting everything in place. He's almost the sports team manager who's just putting everybody in the right place, giving them the right encouragement, maybe using a bit of reverse psychology or some secret tricks to get the best out of the situation. Absolutely. And so I think that your your book just illustrates that perfectly, I think. Well, yeah, I'm actually, you, you know, as you were saying before, I'm surprised. I, I believe, you know, you could talk to Suzuki-san. He, he's usually, no? Well, I would love to. I think it's just that the the, the opportunity hasn't arisen yet. Uh, also, does he give does he give English language interviews? I don't. Well, is he somebody who he doesn't speak? Yeah, he might, <laughs> but you probably would want to uh, bring an interpreter. But I mm-hmm. I think Suzuki-san would probably talk to you. Maybe. Mm, I think so. The, uh, it's harder that, to get. I mean, you know, Miyazaki. Uh, obviously, he he spends his time working. He doesn't do interviews. Uh, until he's finished in that, you know, in that mm-hmm. gap between finishing and thinking about the next one. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you're encouraging me to, to go well, ahead I would and try, try Yeah, I would try talking to Suzuki. Because, no, but not that many people realize how important he is. And uh, I think that's a good, it's a good thing. Because mm-hmm. as you say, he really is key. And I, and I love the, the sort of little details of his character you put in there, how he's a bit of a gadget fiend and has his car <laughs> yeah. with all of his is it sat navs or cd players and stuff attached to the dashboard before they were common in the cars themselves right so. yeah because you know <laughs> all the japanese makers used to come to him with prototypes and stuff you know to have him try things out so huh. <laughs> i i'd 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 like to spotlight a couple of other people from the you know from Ghibli that you maybe mention even in passing in the book yeah. and feel free to say that you didn't have anything to say about them or if you didn't work directly with them but for example Isao Takahata who so that's my- a common you know I get asked that a lot you know you don't say much about Takahata-san in the book mm-hmm. and I've thought about that I think the reason is that um, boy I don't know how to say this Takahata-san is was Unbelievably, he's an intellect was an intellectual and very very thorough. So if he mm-hmm. thought about something, he really 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 thought about it. And so, it's hard to write about because if you're writing about Takahata-san, you're writing about a guy who's you know like this <laughs> for a long time. You know what I mean? It's all inside. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Miyazaki is funny, he says interesting things, he gets angry sometimes, you know, he tells jokes, he's unpredictable, you know. You can write about Miyazaki. But Takahata-san is a lot harder because it's all going on inside. But Mm. he, you know, when he takes on, when he would take on something, he would really, really think it through and through and through and um you know that i think that shows in his films you know it mm-hmm. really it it makes his films are a lot different because he wasn't uh well he wasn't an animator or an artist mm-hmm. but he was just he directed i said just he was the director you know and uh and that i think kind of colors the way, you know the way he was his how he operated in the studio 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I guess they're just, you know, there's not much anecdotally I could really say about Takahata-san. I think that's a lot of the reason why I didn't write about it. Uh, and while I was at the studio, he did um, My Neighbors the Yamadas and uh, I think that was it. He was, you know, he was where he was. They were trying to get um, Kaguya Hime going for a long time. So I think that was really it. Mm-hmm. No, but he, he is. Um, you watch his films, and his films contain oh. whole worlds. Not, not yeah. in the. You can say that about Miyazaki as well, because they are huge imaginative worlds, but Takata has this journalistic eye, attention to detail. He's a philosopher. They're all there. For my co-host, Jake, the real discovery of this, he knew, had seen bits of Spirited Away or Totoro kind of, you know, he knew the imagery of those films, but it was discovering Takahata's films that was the real eye-opener for him. Yeah. And so we'll never pass up an opportunity to ask about him. Yeah. But I understand that. Did, Did you then have to work on Yamada's to sell that internationally or I don't know how that what the timeline of that would be did it even I know it has a, an American dub doesn't it and it did come out yes yes disc eventually yep but I suppose a, a bit harder to sell well you know part yeah depend, and again when you're talking about selling you guess you're talking about different situations different countries and I always seem to go to America to begin with but um a lot of, especially since we were dealing with Disney, a lot of what drives um, the initial interest, let's say, you know, in in releasing the film is how well it did in Japan. Right. And uh, Takahata's films are more intellectual in a ways than Miyazaki's, and so they're, you know, they don't they have a little bit less popular appeal when they come out in the theaters, but. Unfortunately, for uh, this is about Mr. Tokuma, you know, who, again, he was the head of the former parent company. So after um, Mononoke Hime did so well and broke all these box office records, um, this, the theatrical situation in Japan is that Toho owns, used to own all of the major chains uh, mm. of theaters in Japan. And if you weren't showing in Toho theaters during uh, school vacation in the summer, you weren't. There was no way you could do huge box office numbers. You had to be. You know that was an absolute necessity. So after the success of uh, Mononoke Hime, Mr. Tokuma decided he was going to go to Toho and uh, negotiate with them mano a mano with their chairman and he said look you know this is Studio Ghibli we're the best you know you're going to give us a completely different deal than you give everybody else or we'll never release another film in your studios again you know and Toho goes (laughs) you know no (laughs) so you know it was a standoff and poor Suzuki-san he was like pleading with Mr. Togo don't do this but he did do it and so they so uh, the Yamadas had to had to have its theatrical release in the second tier theaters, mm-hmm. so it, it it got an inferior time slot in inferior theaters, and didn't do nearly as well as the other films, and met, which made it you know ten times harder to you know to sell in in the U.S. 
But we did a great job. Uh, the dub is great, I think. It's one of the best ones we've ever done. Yeah, well, I, I think it definitely has its place within the canon, and it has its fans. It really does. We've spoken to critics, we've spoken to animators who think that the innovations behind that film are, are incredible. Oh, the yeah. art style, yeah, yeah, everything, and there's a lot the of vision behind it. Yeah, there's a lot of good technical stuff in there. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, you know, the other thing about Takahata's films are that they're like a really good wine; they age really well. You know, mm-hmm. they. As a you know, a, after a while, you go back and you look at them. It's like oh, why you know? It's sort of you never, gee, I don't know if I saw that when I first saw it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's it's one where certainly when I was a teenager and I'd watch Pompoko or Pompoko's um, amazing. Even Pompoko was one of the films we showed at the British Museum with a packed cinema, with a panel afterwards talking about the history of the tanuki in japanese arts and it was so fascinating to dig into that plus also the um the modernization the urbanization of uh of suburban tokyo and everything like that really fascinating stuff it's just absolutely iconic and then omoide poroporo which is a completely different kind of film about you know a young woman coming of age also Mm -hmm. just absolutely amazing you know it just totally I mean, his films, those three films especially, totally encapsulate uh, a certain era in Japan so perfectly. It's just amazing. But, you know, but then he has his other films. Which, I mean, My Neighbors the Yamadas does too. But he, you know, he has his other films that are just completely different, like Jelinko Chie and, uh, you know, his early TV animation that, that he did, mm-hmm. you know. Which is again completely different. I mean, it, those are children's uh, films, and a completely different thing. Yeah, well, and Grave of the they're Fireflies. the films that we're hoping. Those early ones, are the ones we're hoping, will finally make it to the UK at some point because well, they haven't ever been. I mean, that's the tricky licensing, I'm sure. Well, we we subtitled them all. I mean, that was a kind of a pleasure. Mm-hmm. We subtitled them, and we subtitled. Um, I forget what it's called. Yanabori, Yanabori, the one about the canals. It's a documentary. Do you know that film? Oh, I, I, I've, I have seen that documentary. Yeah, it's um, just the, the one he made in uh, the late eighties. It's yeah. fantastic. It really is. I just loved. I mean, it was such a pleasure to subtitle that and watch it over <laughs> and over. Well, it's quite a long one, isn't it? As well, it's quite a commitment to well, watch all, that over and over. Okay, so all his are long. Yeah, all his films are long. All his films are long. <laughs> too long sometimes um, in a way no I, I, I think that his, his films are absolutely wonderful and so, such an important part it's, it, in the west it is a, a flaw that the the cultural conversation shifts so hard in the direction of Miyazaki's films they understand why because they do play to a broader family audience as well and they maybe have a bit more of a popular appeal but uh, that's what digging into the library of their films is uh, right. that's what's so important about digging into the library is you find such treasures Right. I mean, that's they, they do that. You know, that's how they feel. They've done something and they've done that. They don't do it again. Mm-hmm. They do something different. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I would like to ask that is related to the book, because it's the cover, but you don't talk about it so much in the book, yeah. is your appearance in The Wind Rises yeah. as Castorp, the mysterious German man yeah. um, in the country retreats. So th- that must have come about after you'd finished your day job at Ghibli, or was that still when you were working there? 
no, I was, I was, it was, um, I think it was the year after I retired. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was kind of surprised that they asked me to do that. <laughs> uh, what can and I, what can do I you tell know you? Why they, why they picked you and what was it like then? Well, having to after probably doing all these dubbing sessions then having to stand up to the microphone yourself oh yeah i mean it was well you know i was surprised and uh and but when they told me i had to do it they also told me i had to you know i i was okay with doing my lines in japanese but i had to sing a song in german which mm-hmm. i mean i i'm tone deaf you know really okay. seriously tone deaf and they told Miyazaki that, and he didn't believe it. So, you know, they, he sent me the music, and, uh, you know, I practiced like hell. <laughs> and uh, I I think I must have been visiting Japan, uh, you know, before they did the recording session. And uh, we had a meeting uh, with Hisaishi Joe, and uh, he played the music, <laughs> And they had me sing the song, you know, to see how it would go. It didn't go well. <laughs> and But it didn't go well for Hisaishi either because, I I mean, I, I don't know if I can do this on it, but Miyazaki had this image of how he wanted to play, him to play the piano. So he was, oh. he he had him, I don't know if you can see me, but he had him his arms outstretched and looking over his shoulder like this at me oh. while playing the piano. And... Uh, so I said, I can't do, I can't play the piano like that, you know. And they had this argument. Yes, you sure you can play the piano? Yeah, just try, you know. And he made him try, and he couldn't do it. So they had to get somebody else to come in and fake the piano playing, so he could get, you know, get the idea of how it would look. Uh, but, you know, I mean, learning German—that was the hard part. Learning German that I don't speak, and mm-hmm. and then there's this one line in uh, Japanese. And uh, that is a phrase I've never in my life heard anybody speak aloud. It's it, it's so complicated and archaic. It it's really hard to say, and you know, and it took me forever to. They had to but I had to do a lot of takes on that. But mm-hmm. basically, it was easy in the sense that his vision of the character was me. So all I had to do was be myself, you know, speak Japanese. At one point he said, you're speaking Japanese too well. Try and sound more like a gaijin, you know. <laughs> and uh, That's right. the the music part uh, was a total disaster. And they ended up having to, you know, digitally improve it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did they have to auto-tune you? <laughs> they, they did. They had to digitally improve it uh, after in, oh, wow. in um, you know, post-production. Mm-hmm. So, but that's that's something I I love about um, it, it's there in the Wind Rises, but it's also in other Miyazaki films where he will be, he may be telling this epic story that's set in a historical period, but there is elements within it where he'll say, "Oh, this character, I'll base it on," you know, based on you. Well, the, the character it, the, then no. bring you into voice. So the character or... wasn't based on me. The I I can't remember his name now, but the it's an actual character who it's an actual person who was a spy. Uh, mm-hmm. I think for Russia, uh, you know, uh, he was Russian-Polish, which is my ancestry, you know, and okay. uh, and he, 
I think Miyazaki just felt if I had lived at that particular time, I would, that would have been maybe that would have been me, sort of. But uh-huh. but it's based on this actual guy, and um, you know, such a perfect example of how Miyazaki thinks. That you, you know, I think about this. You know, watching the movie one time. Here's the thing: you would never get, I don't think, from watching the movie. The idea, the reason I had to sing the song was uh, because I'm trying to think that whoever requested the song would know that if the character knew the song, he would. It had just been released in Germany, so he he mm-hmm. would know that this guy has recently been to Germany. Aha! Uh-huh. If he knows this song, he's recently been to Germany. So that's information about, you know, what they're doing with their. He was a pla- uh, an engineer. What they're doing with their planes, you know, they're ah oh, they're basing their plane on the German design. That's information, mm-hmm. because he knew this song that was incredibly popular, and it was a song sung by a woman who was actually secretly Jewish who worked for the Gestapo. I mean, worked for this guy. She entertained Gestapo. Hitler liked her. She was a movie star. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't remember her name, but but this is all real historical stuff, you know. Right, yeah. And it's all in there. It's, it's in there. So well, rich. it's in there, but, I, you know, you really have, you'd have to really dig to ever, you know, find out. But it, that's the thing, you know. I mean, that's the thing about Miyazaki is you can dig because... Most of it, there's a lot more behind it, and you may not be aware of it uh, up front, consciously, mm-hmm. but it's there, and it creates the texture of the film. It's what makes it, you know, what it is. And it gives you the the, the rare privilege of being dubbed by Werner Herzog. <laughs> well, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I have to say, they asked me if I would do it. I said no, because I'm not a professional. It's, you know, it's... Mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm the character he wants for Japanese version, fine, but not the English version. I said, no, I thought they should use um, Christoph, um, what's his name? Oh, Christoph Waltz. Yeah, I thought Christoph. From Inglorious yes, Bastards. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. I, I said, that's the guy. You want that guy to do it. But they didn't listen to me. But if I had still been that, if so, I had still been in charge, I would have. that's what I would have done. So, so they had to settle with one of the most well, you know what? unique voices I'm in film. Gonna, yeah, yeah, it's true. It's another part of the book that really um, stood out for me. Um, it's only a passing, well, not maybe not a passing reference, but something that really interests me is that maybe because of the ways that we talk about animation and maybe pigeonhole Ghibli within animation, right. is we often only talk about animators influencing animators. So it's a you know, Ghibli it has an affinity with Pixar or Aardman. However, you, you mentioned when um, the Berlin Film Festival is happening that Miyazaki is excited to be going round the locations of Barry Lyndon, the Stanley Kubrick. Yes, film, yes. Which is not a film I would have thought. Me neither. Had had any 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 connection with it with his visual imagination. Um, yeah, I I'm, and, and I'm I, with and you I there. Wondered, I were, were there any other maybe films or references that 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 we might be surprised to know that that sparked sparked or influenced Miyazaki? Um, not really. I can't think of any. You know, they're often asked which animated films uh, influence them. I think that's pretty well documented. But 
live action films I don't know, but yeah, Barry Lyndon was one of their very Suzuki and Miyazaki, their very favorite films. They loved that film. Uh, and I absolutely can't help you. <laughs> You'll have to ask. No, 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 that's perfect. You'll have to that's ask perfectly fine. I don't know these, either. These, these, these I was surprised the, the... too. Well, I don't know. All I know is, I mean, to be honest, uh, um, God, what's his name? Um, Ryan O'Neill, is that the guy who plays? He's the mm-hmm, leader. Yeah. See, uh, for, for me, he ruins it for me because he's just so bad. <laughs> he's so bad in that film. But somebody mentioned to me that, yeah, you know, because you're an English speaker, you can hear how bad he is, but foreigners don't pick that up. So mm-hmm. you'd have to ask them, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it really is one of the great bad Irish accents <laughs> committed to yeah. to film. Yeah. Although I, I love, I, I, I don't know if this is a reference that means anything to you, but Leonard Rossiter, who is a, in the 1970s was a big British sitcom actor. He plays... Um, in the early part of the film, the guy that he duels with in, in Barry oh, Lyndon, and I think his performance is just brilliant. Uh, Barry Lyndon's probably my favorite Kubrick film, so that's oh really why that. Oh, well, so you know, you understand me. better than I do. <laughs> I, it's a it's a beautiful film. Must be, <laughs> those guys love it. <laughs> so I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I suppose um, only a couple more very quick questions, really. Sure. Uh, what one one um, thing that's that jumps out on IMDb um, for me is that you're thanked in the credits for Toy Story 3. Oh, uh, that's nothing. And is that really nothing? No. Well, I mean, I occasionally I gave him some advice on translating into Japanese, which, uh-huh. but I think that was just about uh, uh, they um, wanted to use Totoro uh, as one mm-hmm. of the characters, one of the, you know, one of the toys. And uh, I helped them get permission for that. That's all. Was that was that a hard process to go through? Or was it quite easy? Because uh, you know, Ghibli are known as being quite protective of their characters. That's them appear- appearing in a mainstream American movie. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because really it shouldn't have been a problem because it was a favor for John Lasseter, which was that's no mm-hmm. problem at all. But somehow. Um, there's a trick to getting Hayao Miyazaki to agree to anything. He somehow, whatever you ask him to do, that is the one thing he does not want to do. So you have to be, when you ask him something, you sort of have to think about how you're going to do it. It's a big deal for fans when, and, when you spot well, that in the background. Well, something. the other thing, the reason it seemed like a big deal is because it was uh, Disney. And, mm-hmm. you know, they have a heavy participation of lawyers in anything they do, right? So the reason was they would send over these absolutely ridiculous contracts, you know, like, okay, we're using Totoro, so now we have permission to do anything we want with Totoro in every country in the world whenever we want to do it and not pay you anything. So I think the thanks was for my forbearance in telling him to go themselves and and working with them to you know to pare down their requests to something more reasonable that would be <laughs> that's, that's perfect because yeah. well you may not know but i mean pixar originally was an independent studio and disney was their distributor so in a way they were in the same position towards disney as we were you know what i mean mm-hmm. so in other words everything that we experienced with disney they had experienced only obviously on a much larger scale you know with a lot more money involved but so they so pixar people were really helpful to us as well mm-hmm. and it was a pleasure to 
do whatever I could to help them. Yeah, that's that, that's that's terrific. So my final question really is: part of the ongoing uh, goal of our podcast is to champion these films and recommend them to people who maybe haven't seen them before, or haven't dug deeper past maybe the the big hitters up top. Yep. we've mentioned a few of them in the course of our conversation already, but what's the one that you would recommend? The one film out of the whole bunch you'd recommend someone to go away and have their mind blown by? Oh gosh, I hate to recommend just one. You know that the official position at Studio Ghibli was each film is like their child and you can't favor one child over another mm-hmm. and they're all different but I don't know you know probably if you ask me on another day I'd give you another answer but I think today I would say Nausicaa the Valley of the Wind but partly it's because I'm influenced by how difficult it was for them to make that film uh, mm-hmm. You know, it was the circumstances of the studio at the time and, you know, the fact that it was really one of, one of the very, it was the very first feature-length animated film to be made and, you know, shown in theaters. And that was no easy accomplishment. And, you know, I think that film really, God, that really holds up so well today. It's a wonderful film. And I suppose it's not talked about as much as a lot of the other ones are in fact some people write about it like it's not a ghibli film you know Mm -hmm. i mean technically the studio hadn't you know what i mean it's the same people they just hadn't Mm -hmm. formed the studio yet uh that's the film i would pick it's 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 it is a great film and i'm i'm finally getting around to reading the manga there's there's a beautiful two volume hardback edition that i've picked up and that's of course goes into much more the story keeps going and going beyond the boundaries yeah it's seven volumes I think altogether they're originally yeah he spent a long time doing that (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah but yeah Steve thank you so much for spending time talking to me it's been such an honour and a privilege Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thank you so much to Steve Alpert there for joining us to talk about all his amazing experiences when working at Studio Ghibli. And thank you too to Michael Palmer from Stonebridge Press, who uh, helped us put that interview together during very weird times for all of us. Um, I'd like to just make one last plug for the book. It's so good for the Ghibli fan in your life, a perfect stocking filler, particularly if they're on the nerdy side. Um, it's available wherever you get your books. Uh, I actually have it both digitally and a paperback copy because I'm that nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I only want to annotate things digitally. I want a clean <laughs> paper copy. I think that, that shows a lot of the difference between you and I, Michael, that all of my books are riddled with different tabs and folded pages and underlines. So we've still got two more episodes of this Whispers from the Heart series to come. Up next, we're going to be talking to someone who, Michael, you and I didn't know that much about. But Steph, you are very excited about this one. Yeah, super excited. So next week, we're talking to Rebecca Sugar, who created the highly popular, much loved show, Steven Universe, um, a Cartoon Network series that's been running for a really long time now. And it's kind of just about come to its end. So um, really, really exciting to talk to her about that. And there's so many kind of anime influences in there, um, from the kind of conception of the show to just kind of bits and pieces being referenced here and there um and yeah as you'll hear next week when we spoke to Rebecca there was a lot of love for anime and Ghibli and everything in between so yeah hopefully you'll join us next week for that I really can't wait to to hear this chat because yeah I, I uh I know next to nothing about Steven Universe. I've missed out on all this good animation. I didn't know there was such a connection with Ghibli. But until we release that chat, you can follow us on Twitter at GhibliAttack. You can send us an email at Ghibli at little.studios.com. And you can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael J. Leader. You can follow Steph on Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Mo, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Steph Watts, and Harold McShiel. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.